Welcome to IFA Talk, IFA Magazine's weekly podcast. IFA Talk is for professional investors only. Thank you. Thanks very much for joining us for the latest episode of IFA Talk, IFA Magazine's weekly podcast, where we talk to people who matter about the things that matter in the world of financial services. I'm Brandon Russell, online writer here at IFA Magazine, and joining me on the podcast this week is our editor, Sue Whitbread. Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's IFA Talk, where it's the outlook for global markets on our agenda today, but not in a boring old way, and that's largely because we've got Bill Blaine. Uh, strategist at Sharp Capital as our guest. Uh, Bill is he's getting quite famous now for his daily blog. Uh, how, how can I describe it? Uh, honest, I think perhaps. Uh, very humorous. Uh, is a great read. Uh, forthright, perhaps. It's called Morning Porridge anyway. And you might have also heard him speak on the BBC in the morning, Today programme. He, he gives his views there, Wake Up to Money. Uh, but he certainly tells it like it is. So, Bill, it's welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on today. Great to be here as well. I'm delighted to be on. Bill Layton, it's great to have you on today. Let's start with risk, shall we? Where do you think the biggest risks are for markets between now, early September and the end of the year? Okay, now that is a great question because we've clearly still got a lot of uncertainty out there. Now, most people reckon that we are heading into what we, you know, for want of a better term, we call a deflationary bust. And that's where inflation is now under control but to bring inflation under control, you have to manufacture a, like a, a, a recession. So we're going to see the economy slow down. Uh, we're going to see job creation slow down. We're going to see the pace of wage demand slow down. We'll probably see economic activity decline for a bit. And that results in what we call a deflationary bust, where prices start to fall again and, and everything uh, starts to normalize. And the expectation is that's not going to be terribly deep. And that deflation will continue on as a theme, much as it was through the entire uh, uh, 2020s and noughties, because you've got things like China beginning to grow again, and you've got the boom that we're going to get from artificial intelligence and automation and all these things, which are going to make everything cheaper. So that's the kind of upside that short term, we're going to get inflation going down interest rates will start to fall at some point in the medium term and long term the global economy will get more efficient that's what most analysts are telling you and i reckon there's probably about 60 percent likelihood that's going to happen my concern is though that things never happen the way you expect them to in markets and i think that what we've just seen this week in terms of oil prices uh, and the saudi arabians continuing and extending their production um, shortage, you know, cutting off the amount of oil they're actually producing, which has pushed up oil prices. That's a clear sign of, I think, a problem to come. Now, if you think back, we have addressed the current inflation um, outbreak in a conventional way. We've cooled down the economy. Now, that didn't occur because of too much money in the economy. The monetarists will always tell you that inflation is everywhere a monetary phenomenon. What triggered inflation this time was energy prices caused by the Ukraine war. And if we see gas uh, oil prices continue to go up and remain elevated, that's going to stop inflation falling the way that politicians and central bankers have been assuring us it would. And it's going to result in prices staying elevated for longer. 
Now, that's when we get into a situation that some of us will remember from the 1970s and early 80s called stagflation. And I reckon that is somewhere in the region of 30% risk at the moment. And if that happens, that is going to be profoundly negative for markets, not just for bond markets, but also for stock markets, because we're already going into a thing where consumers are short cash, they're heavily indebted, debt servicing has gone through the roof, and uh, the corporate credit of an economy, especially our one, is increasingly under pressure. That's a very long-winded way of saying that I think there is a risk of stagflation coming. Well, I for one, Bill, I'm old enough to remember stagflation in the 70s, and uh, yeah, it's not something to... to to look forward to. Anyway, I'm going to switch your attention across the pond now, if I may, and uh, get your views on next year's US election. It's, it's hotting up already, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> I, in, in fact, I probably should have put that on our threat board. We've only talked about one thing on the threat board so far, which is uh, a deflationary bust versus inflation. But one of the other big risks that I'm really thinking about is, well, let's define, let's just be honest what it is. It's Donald Trump. Yeah, let's get straight to it. Come on, he's the risk. Yeah, he is the risk. Yeah. If, Should we be worried then? If Donald Trump was standing against anyone except Joe Biden, we would not have to worry because even though 80% of Republicans support Trump, that would still mean the 20% that can't abide him and all the Democrats who can't abide him would ensure we wouldn't end up with Donald Trump. Um, we are going to have a very close race. And in fact, in the polls just now, they're showing in the States that Trump could well win. Now, what would that mean for the global economy? Well, the US will become more isolated. We are likely to see the breakup of NATO and all that entails. That will force Europe to make decisions about how they interreact with China. Now, there are all kinds of things to talk about in terms of where the Chinese economy is going to be. But Trump will no longer be the great disruptor, but he's going to be the great destroyer of the current global economy. And we really need to spend a lot of time thinking about what the individual issues in terms of what companies are going to do in terms of a Trump victory. What does it mean in terms of their international business and their U.S. business? What does it do to the dollar? What does it do to geopolitics? There are so many aspects of that Donald Trump question. So that's one of the key things at the top of my threat list. I've been banging on about it for, for a long, long time. I remember friends of mine after the last election, I mean, because I do have Republican friends, and they were all telling me, don't worry, Donald Trump's gone. You won't have to worry about him again. He's gone. He's an aberration. We'd never allow anything like that to happen. But you know what scares me most, Sue? These, still, these same Americans are now saying, well, you know what? Donald Trump version 2.1 might not be as bad as we think. What are they smoking? <laughs> That's if he's not uh, conducting the presidential uh, role of state from this prison cell, though, eh, Bill? Well, he could theoretically pardon himself from many of the crimes he's been accused of, except, of course, the critical ones, which are interrupting the election in Georgia, because that is a Georgia state crime, not something that some far off president in Washington can declare himself innocent of, even though he's blindingly guilty. Oh, we shouldn't laugh, it's too serious. <laughs> it is serious, but hey, if you can't laugh at imminent destruction of the global economy, what can you laugh at? You are listening to IFA Talk, IFA Magazine's weekly podcast. 
Subscribe to us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts to be notified as soon as a new episode becomes available. And follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram at IFA Magazine. Well, just moving on then. Earlier on, Bill, you mentioned AI. Uh, what do you think about it? Uh, and is the attention it's getting creating a bit of a tech bubble? Uh, is it? Well, let's answer the second part of your question there. Is it a tech bubble? Yes, of course, it's a tech bubble. Um, because people see the enormous potential in artificial intelligence for changing the way and uh, creating what we like to call in economist type speak, a paradigm shift in the way that economies work and making them more efficient. That basically means that uh, a little computer chip will replace most of us, including all of us on this podcast, because there'll be better journalists and writers and commentators than any of us ever will be. Um, so we'll all be replaced by AI and it will push workers further down. That's described as giving them more leisure time. Um, but it's going to have a profound effect on the way that economies work, or at least that's the supposition. And so people start buying into everything that's AI because they think this is going to happen in the future. And I've got our own researchers and analysts saying that the effect of AI in creating deflation, in other words, making economies cheaper to produce what they're still doing, is going to be highly significant. And I'm sure it will be. But at the moment, it's an enormous bubble. And, you know, when NVIDIA is tr trading on, what is it, 225 times earnings, and there are alternatives to what NVIDIA is creating in terms of its chip-based approach to training AI programs, there are new computers coming through that are faster and we've got still quantum computing to come. So the moat, as we like to say, is not that deep. And then, of course, this week, we have got the beginning of the ARM IPO, be the biggest IPO. And it's basically the old UK chip maker that was bought for a fortune by SoftBank. And that's going to be IPO'd this week. Now, originally, we thought it was going to be 65 billion valuation. And we all said, whoa, that's crazy talk. And now it's only 50 billion because people are acknowledging maybe things aren't that great. I say that's probably still twice the value that it really should be. Uh, but the IPO will only raise about 5 billion. And it's going to succeed because so many of the anchor investors are other parts of that AI ecosystem. It's people like Microsoft, Amazon, Apple, other chip makers, including NVIDIA, who uses ARM software in their AI chips. But the whole thing is based on a complete, in my, I'm not going to use the word fraud, but it's based on, well, look, think about it this way. I reckon I'm, I'm worth something. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to sell 25% of myself at a price of $16 billion to myself. That therefore values me at $64 billion. Now that's effectively what SoftBank has done by buying the 25% of ARM that was owned by Vision Fund, which it incidentally runs and owns at a price of 16 billion, therefore valuing the company at 64 billion. Therefore, by the same logic, I am also worth 64 billion. 64 billion watts, I don't know. <laughs> well, congratulations. And by the time this podcast goes out, then uh, arm holdings will be safely, you know, fluctuating away on the New York yeah. stock market, won't it? But... Other economists are available. <laughs> <laughs> I could, I'm going to move you on now. I'm going to take you overseas again. You mentioned earlier about China, uh, clearly something we all need to consider. I wonder whether you think the concerns around China really are warranted. 
Uh, the, the consensus is that China is facing a major economic downturn. And certainly, if you take a look at what we know about China, there are reasons to be concerned. With One of my big concerns, the thing that I think interests me most in terms of what it could lead to is social tension. When you have 20% of uh, youth unemployed, you know, you think back to the 1989 in Tiananmen Square. Now, since then, China has become a very successful surveillance economy. They have a surveillance capitalism economy. They have the ability to create economic growth, and they also have a very tightly police-controlled state. So maybe I'm overemphasizing the chance of social tensions. But the whole basis of China has always been what we call the iron rice bowl, which is... As long as the state is looking after people and ensuring their prosperity and growth and the economy is continuing to grow to offer them new opportunities, then people are happy for the Communist Party to run the country. That has been the tacit agreement for 40 years. Now, if that breaks down, that's a major issue. Now they're having alongside that the same kind of economic issues that we have in the West in terms of you know, it's a competitive market out there. They've got a trade war going with uh, the US, which means their access to modern technology is limited. Their access to markets is limited. They also have the sheer damn inefficiency of a command and control economy when it is that big. And there are clearly tensions between regional governments who want to spend as much money as they possibly can to make themselves look good against central government trying to control themselves, the opportunities for corruption that creates. And then, of course, that's most clearly seen in the property crash, where we've got 33% of the economy is within property. We've seen Evergrande and, um, God, what's the name of the other one, uh, the other company both going bust. Yeah, well, they haven't gone bust because at the last minute they managed to repay their current debts. But it's all a bit of a, you know, it, it doesn't look great. So for all these reasons, and the fact that you never really know what's going on in China because due diligence is considered to be spying and any economic number is controlled by the state, it's very, very difficult to invest in China. But, 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 here's the key thing. China is an economy of one billion people. They have a very strong and rising and increasingly wealthy middle class who are still spending money. Now, China has successfully invested in building very strong domestic infrastructure. You compare their railways to ours, it's laughable. You compare their airports to ours and their road systems to ours. And you know what? Their economy actually works. You can actually get from one place to the other quite quickly without it destroying your day, as any trip from Southampton, where I live, to London is likely to do. Um, so when it comes to their new economy, which is going to be based, much as ours will be, on online activity and using the Internet, there are great opportunities for growth in China. They also have their own technologies going on, and they are still going to be demanding global goods, even though they're going to be increasingly uh, focused domestically. So that you cannot just write off China I would say China has much the same economic problems we have in the West with an added spice of corruption and possible social unrest. Don't write it off completely, but you need to be very selective to do anything in China. Wise words now, I think. Bill? Well, Bill, we're, we're rapidly running out of time, but one last quick question for today. I, I wonder what you would say is your favourite market mantra? 
Ah, now market mantras, that's one of my specialities. Uh, <laughs> there, there is somewhere a book of Blaine's market mantras. And these are things that I've picked up over the last 40 years in financial markets. And, and most of them are, I mean, I, I can't remember half of them. I, I've got 26 of them pinned up somewhere. But people tell me there are more. There are a few that are critically important. Do they change from day to day, your favourite ones then? No, my favourite ones are pretty <laughs> much uh, stuck the whole time. Uh, there are yeah. some that change over time. For instance, there was time um, whenever the ECB is meeting, sell the euro, and as soon as Draghi stands up to speak, buy... And that was based on just how effective uh, Draghi was as ECB president. But of course, he's now long gone and he's you know, ended his career as uh, Italian prime minister before that fell. All Italian prime ministers fall. But there are some that are absolutely constant. And there are two that I think are absolutely critical that I'll share with you this morning. And you should very much apply to today's markets. Um, we are very concerned about how unstable, uncertain markets remain and we worry about just how bad things are going to be. So my first key market mantra is things are never as bad as we fear, but seldom as good as we hope. So that means when the market is panicking that things are going to be absolutely terrible, that's the time to start thinking about, okay, how do I exploit and look for bargains in that market? But don't get carried away with bubbles because they always burst. So that would be a key one. Things are never as bad as you fear, but seldom as good as you hope. But the other one to always keep at the back of your mind and remember is that the market has but one objective, and that is to inflict the maximum amount of pain on the maximum number of participants. And that always happens as bubbles burst. Now, I've seen umpteen market crashes and umpteen tech bubbles burst. And I suspect that we're going to get at least a correction in the current one. Yeah, as you say, Bill, fortune doesn't always favour the brave, does it? So. Well, what a heck of a way to end. Bill, that was a fantastic conversation. Plenty of food for thought in that. Plenty of things to worry about, think about. Thank you very much for your time today. We really appreciate it. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much. IFA Talk is for investment professionals only. All material has been carefully checked for accuracy, but no responsibility can be accepted for inaccuracies. Whatever appropriate, independent research, and whatever necessary, legal advice, should be sought before acting on any information contained in this podcast. And value of investments and income from them can go down as well as up. You may not get back the amount you originally invested.